And if you turn to your Bibles again, we're going to read from the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 through to the end of chapter 5. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 1147, or in the larger print Bibles, 1774. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, beginning to read at verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is God's word. And if this particular part of God's word is not familiar to us, we might find it quite shocking. Particularly since it follows the passage we looked at last week. You may remember Paul said to the Corinthians, It is the Lord who judges me, 
Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. How does that fit with what Paul says here? Where he's insisting they do make a judgment and act on it. Well, we saw last week Paul was responding to the way the Corinthians are assessing their church leaders. They have the wrong criteria. They're looking for eloquence and sophistication and charisma. But Paul says what you ought to be looking for in your leaders is faithfulness to God. Never mind the other stuff. Specifically, what you ought to be looking for is faithfulness to the message of the cross. God has entrusted his servants with the job of making that message known and living it out. Living lives that command the message and back it up. Those are the criteria church leaders should be judged on. And in fact, those are the criteria all Christians should be judged on. Are we living in line with the message of the crucified Savior, or are we denying that message by our words or our lives? Being impressive in other ways really counts for nothing. If we're not faithful in the ways God calls us to be faithful. And Paul added that God was the final judge because God sees what no one else can see. He sees the motives of the heart. So any human judgment can only be provisional. But that doesn't mean we are never to make judgments. In fact, there are times when we must. We'll see in a moment that's what Jesus taught and Paul teaches it here in our passage. This passage is about church discipline. Now, depending on our background, the word discipline, when we hear it, may be a neutral word to us, may not have any particular associations for us, or it may be a negative word to us. It may make us think of harsh treatment that has been dished out to us in the past. But the Bible uses the word discipline in a positive way. It's always performed for a good purpose. And hopefully we'll see that as we go through this passage. And first of all, the opening verses show us discipline is always necessary in the church. Look again at verses 18 to 21 of chapter 4, those last few verses of the chapter. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? If we remember the background here, in earlier passages, Paul has drawn attention to the arrogance of this church, or at least a part of the church, a significant part. They are puffed up with pride for various reasons. They think they're a cut above other people. Some of them think they're a bit too cultivated and a bit too cosmopolitan for someone like Paul. Paul, who is a teacher in the church, but is willing to work with his own hands. What was that about? 
crouched over a bench in a tent maker's workshop day after day. Some of the Corinthians found it a bit embarrassing to be taught by someone like that. They wanted a teacher who was much more respected in society, who had a higher position in society. And here Paul says, I'm planning to pay you a visit in Corinth, then we'll see what power those people have. What does he mean? Well, the word power has been used quite a lot in previous chapters. It means God's power to change lives through the message of the cross. Paul has not used the word so far to speak about spectacular miracles. He's used it to talk about a simple but powerful message, a message that changes lives. And so here he's saying, some of you Corinthians are impressive talkers. But we'll see if there's any of God's power behind your talk. We'll see if the message about Jesus is taking hold of men and women and changing their lives. That is true power, as Paul is using the word. And then we have this slightly shocking question in verse 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? The word discipline is actually not there in the original. Literally it reads, shall I come with a rod or in love and a gentle spirit? The translators of the NIV have added the word discipline to show that Paul is talking about a metaphorical rod, not a real one. He's not saying he's going to get off the boat and beat them all with a stick. No, he's talking about coming either boldly and sternly or coming more gently. And in fact, whether he comes boldly or gently, either way, he is coming to bring discipline. Think about what discipline means. Discipline simply means doing what I ought to do. And if I'm not doing what I ought to do, it means taking steps to change things. So, for example, if I am constantly exhausted, I might discipline myself to regularly go to bed a bit earlier. That is a painless form of discipline. But it is discipline. Because it's taking a step to do what I ought to do. If someone is a bit overweight, they may discipline themselves to cut out puddings. That might be slightly more painful than going to bed earlier. Someone who wants to run a marathon will discipline themselves in a whole lot of ways that are quite painful. But they're not trying to damage themselves. They're taking steps to do what they have committed to do, run a marathon. Those examples all fall under the category of what we call self-discipline. I may also discipline myself to do the work that I'm contracted to do and supposed to do. I may discipline myself to abide by the laws of the country. And if I fail to discipline myself in any of those ways, then discipline may be imposed on me by others, by my boss or by the government. But still, the aim of the discipline is to bring improvement, not to make things worse. 
So if we have that understanding of discipline in our minds, we can begin to make sense of this passage. These Christians in Corinth profess to belong to Christ. And that involves a commitment to live for Christ, to honor and obey him. But we know from this letter, there are lots of things that need improving in the Corinthian church. In many areas of life, they are not honoring and obeying Christ. So Paul's letter is an effort to bring improvement. In that sense, this letter itself is bringing discipline to the church. It's aiming to get them doing what they ought to do and have committed to do. Paul would love to come and continue the discipline in a gentle way. In his letter to the church in Galatia, he writes, if someone is caught in sin, restore that person gently. As these believers in Corinth read his letter, Paul would love to find out they're taking his words of correction on board and they're working to bring improvement in their church fellowship. And then when he visits, he can continue to bring discipline in a gentle way through his teaching. But there is another alternative. If they disregard his letter, the discipline is going to have to be much more bold. The work of bringing improvement will be a whole lot more painful for everyone. So the point for us to grasp as we look at these initial verses is discipline in the church will not always look bold. It won't always involve a lot of pain. In fact, most of the time, discipline goes on quietly. Church discipline starts with self-discipline as each member of the church takes steps to grow in their knowledge of God and turn from sin. That kind of discipline is unspectacular, and it's a daily work. Every Christian is called to it as we seek to personally love and obey God. It's only when that self-discipline isn't taking place that other kinds of discipline come in. And to begin with, that's not going to be terribly painful either. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, if a Christian is failing to be self-disciplined, then a brother or sister who notices their sin is to go to them privately and talk to them about it. At that point, two Christians are working together to bring improvement. Then if that second form of discipline fails, things become a little more bold. Later on, you can read those steps for yourself in Matthew 18. But the point for us to see is that church discipline has many stages and many steps. And most of them are not public or even very painful. But if a particular step of discipline does not result in repentance and change, if it doesn't result in the sin issue beginning to be dealt with, then a next step is required. That's what Paul is getting at here. It's a simple fact that discipline is always necessary in the church. It's necessary in all of our lives all the time. As we take our calling seriously to live as God's holy people. Every time we receive new members into this church, we all stand 
And together with those new members, we reaffirm some membership commitments that we have. The very first one says this, as a new person in Christ, I seek to live a holy life as a child of God, being obedient to his word. We also make this commitment. I seek to bear a distinct witness to God in the world by word and quality of life. Living out those commitments takes daily self-discipline from each one of us. When we fail, as we often will, it requires repentance and genuine steps to turn from sin. And over the course of our Christian lives, we will also need the support of some close, trusted brothers and sisters in the church. We need the extra discipline that comes with accountability to others. We need them to help us do what we ought to do, what we have committed to do, to honor and obey Jesus with our whole lives. All of us need that accountability and providing it, that is part of our responsibility to one another. We need help with discipline and we give help with discipline. So discipline is always necessary in the church. That is the normal way discipline happens in the church, gently and informally. That kind of discipline is going on all the time. But sometimes those normal forms of discipline feel and bolder forms of discipline are needed. And the final stage in that bolder discipline is what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sometimes radical, tearful discipline is necessary. We've taken care, I hope, to notice this is not the sum total of what we mean by church discipline. It's the very last step in a long process. And therefore, it's a step that will not have to be used very often. I've been here in this church for almost 13 years, and this has happened only a small number of times. So what are the specifics of this situation in Corinth? We'll look at chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So a member of the church, someone who has committed to honor Jesus with his life, is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. That's why she's called his father's wife rather than his mother. And apparently the lady is not a member of the church. There's no discussion at all about her being disciplined. And this is ongoing sin. It's a relationship rather than a one-off. It's sinful for several reasons. Because the church member is not married to the woman. And because she is married to the man's father. Not to mention that the church member is involved in an intimate relationship with an unbeliever. That just adds another layer of sin. And in this particular case, it's a kind of sin that even the pagan world frowns on. That isn't often going to be the case, 
Usually sin that the church takes seriously is just taken as normal outside the church. So the measure of sin is not what other people think of it. It's what God thinks of it. But in this particular case, historians tell us the culture of the time regarded this as incest. To be involved like this with your stepmother. Anyway, this is going on. It has sufficient uh, public, a sufficiently public aspect to it that Paul has heard about it. That means most of the church has heard about it. It means plenty of people outside the church will have heard about it too. But the church has done nothing about it. Verse 2, Paul says, And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? And have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? When Paul says, and you are proud, I don't think he means they're proud of the sin. It's much more likely he means they're proud in spite of the sin that's going on. They're puffed up with all these ideas about how great they are, and all the while this blatant sin is going unchecked in the midst of the church. But it's the next bit of verse 2 that is the most significant. The first thing Paul would have expected the church to do was what? To mourn about this. This situation calls for deep sadness, for tears. That someone who professes to be an ambassador for Christ is committed to a lifestyle that dishonors the name of Christ. So let us never get the idea that church discipline is to be a harsh, cold thing. Or even a gleeful thing, where the church is rubbing its hands together because it finally gets to do something serious. Now, when this kind of radical discipline has to happen, it must be accompanied by tears. Genuine sorrow that it has come to this. But notice, too, these are not sentimental tears. This is not the kind of mourning that gets all watery-eyed but does nothing. Literally, Paul says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning so that you put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. In other words, true mourning, true sorrow over this sin will move the church to take action, to do something about the situation. True mourning over sin doesn't stop with tears. It produces action. In this case, the action should be to put the man out of the fellowship. Now remember, this is not a first step. It's obvious the man's self-discipline has failed completely. The discipline of his individual brothers and sisters has failed, assuming they've challenged him about his sin, as Jesus commanded. Through all of this, the man has been unyieldingly unrepentant. He has persisted in clinging to his sin, There's no reasonable sign of repentance. The sexual relationship is still going on. 
from all appearances, this man loves the sin more than he loves Jesus. And so as the last step in a long process, the man must be put out of the fellowship. What exactly does that mean? Well, it does not mean the church needs to hire a couple of bouncers to fling the guy into the street and stop him getting back in. In fact, it's safe to assume this man would have been welcome to come and hear the good news about Jesus being preached in the church. That's what unrepentant sinners need to hear. Public services of worship are open to everyone. We cannot physically bar people even if we wanted to. We create all sorts of awkward situations if we tried to do that. No, this is about putting the man out of membership. He can still come, but he will no longer be viewed as someone who belongs to Jesus. He will now be viewed as someone who needs to come to Jesus and be saved. Another way of putting it is the church can no longer affirm that this man is a Christian. There's no good evidence that he belongs to Jesus. Because people who belong to Jesus will all struggle with sin. But this man is not struggling with sin. He has made his peace with sin. He has chosen it rather than obedience to God. So the church must declare that it finds his claim to follow Jesus to be simply unbelievable. Bruce Milne says, True children of God, though they regularly fall into sin, cannot continue carelessly in sin. That's what we're talking about. Every Christian falls short. We all stumble in sin in many and various ways. But there comes a point where if we clench our fists round our sin, and we're not just talking about sexual sin. Later Paul will also mention greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, and swindling, dishonesty. That's just a representative list. It's not a complete list. But whatever it is, if over time we doggedly refuse to have our fingers prized away from our sin, if we cling to it, then the church has no option in the end but to say we can no longer affirm this person as a servant of Jesus Christ. We see no evidence of a true commitment to Jesus Christ. Should a church ever rush to say that? Absolutely not. We ought to err on the side of moving slowly and cautiously and graciously, giving the person concerned every benefit of the doubt that we can. But when all our other avenues have been exhausted and the person still gives evidence of loving their sin more than they love Jesus, then this radical discipline is necessary. Someone who had previously been thought of and treated as a fellow believer in Christ is now treated as an unbeliever. We'll think in a moment about what that involves, but at the very least, 
It involves a statement that the person is no longer a member of the church. And now we come to an issue that's just as important as the what of radical church discipline. Now we come to the why. What is the purpose of it? Paul gives us three purposes. But before we get to those, notice Paul assumes this action is taken by the whole church. No doubt the leaders are to oversee this. Usually the leaders will do a lot of the work trying to resolve things before it gets to this point. But when it does get to this, this is not a deal done by the elders in a back room agreeing to quietly remove the person from the membership role. This is to be a collective action. Look again at verse 3. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus and the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over. We'll get to the part of that in verse 5. When Paul says he'll be with them in spirit, I think he means by that what we mean when we say it today. I won't be there, but I will be fully behind you. And the you is plural. The church unites to do this together. And so then, what is the purpose of it? Discipline is carried out by the church for the sake of, firstly, the name of Jesus. That's in the verses we just read. These people are gathered in the name of Jesus. That's an acknowledgement that Christians are called to represent Jesus. And so when someone's life shows an all-consuming love for the sin Jesus died to save them from, when they show no reasonable desire to pursue the holiness Jesus won for them, then that person is ruining the witness of the whole church. That's one reason the church takes action as a body. The person is unrepentantly dishonoring Jesus' name. And so for Jesus' sake, the church acts to remove the person. One writer says, church discipline is about the reputation of Jesus on earth. We cannot affirm those who claim to represent him, but don't care how they represent him. Discipline is also carried out by the church for the sake of the individual being disciplined. Verse 5 hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. We'll think in a moment about what it means to hand someone over to Satan, but before that, look at the reason this is being done. It is so that the person may be saved. This painful judgment of discipline happens now in hope the person will be saved from eternal judgment when Jesus returns. That's what the day of the Lord means. This action is taken to bring the individual to their senses, to try and achieve the repentance which the gentler discipline has not achieved. 
So don't think of church discipline as a church washing its hands of someone. No, the day the person is put out, we're already praying they'll be brought back in. That the experience will reveal to them the emptiness of their sin and the priceless value of knowing Jesus. We're praying they will come to their senses and run home to the Father, like the prodigal son in Jesus' story, longing to be cleansed of their sin and to live for him. And if we see that purpose to the discipline at the end of verse 5, it helps us when we try to understand the handing over to Satan at the start of verse 5. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. So handing someone over to Satan, that means putting that person outside the care and the spiritual protection that exists in the church fellowship. It means allowing the person to sample life under the care of the prince of this world, who Jesus also described as a liar and a murderer. Those who are carrying out this discipline are praying the shock and the chill of that experience will cause the destruction of the flesh. Often in the New Testament, the flesh is a term for evil, sinful desires. Of course, Satan doesn't want to destroy those. He wants to destroy the person completely. But the hope is that Satan's attempts to destroy the person will have a result he doesn't intend. The person will turn from their sin and run back to Jesus for the saving of their soul. Discipline is also carried out by the church for the sake of the church itself. One of the most serious effects of unrepented sin in the church is the way it infects others in the church. It announces that sin is okay, really. It's not that big a deal. It's not worth getting serious about. And that attitude spreads. That kind of careless attitude to sin will destroy a church and its witness very, very quickly. You notice Paul uses a baking illustration to make that point in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Maybe the church has been taking the attitude that, well, it's just one person, it's just one situation. What does it really matter? But Paul says a little unrepentant sin is like a little yeast. It spreads through everything. And Paul has not chosen that illustration at random. In the Old Testament, the Passover was a meal that celebrated God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It's described in Exodus chapter 12. And it's centered around the meal of a lamb. God told his people to prepare for that meal 
by removing all traces of yeast from their houses. Then at the celebration meal along with the lamb, they were to eat bread made without yeast. What was so bad about yeast? Well, nothing really, but God chose the activity of getting rid of yeast to teach his people about the need to purify their lives. First of all, he made it clear salvation was his work. When they escaped Egypt, it was God who delivered them. He sent his destroying angel to kill the firstborn in Egypt for Egypt's rebellion against him. And the Israelites deserved to die too. But God accepted the death of the lamb instead. That's why they painted the lamb's blood on their doorposts to say they were trusting in the lamb. Their salvation was God's work. And they were to celebrate that by living lives that honored God, searching their lives and being ruthless with sin. Just like they searched every corner of their houses and removed the yeast. And here Paul says to Christians, a lamb was slain for our salvation too. Jesus is the lamb of God who died in our place. And we are to respond to that salvation, not by dealing with yeast in our houses, but by dealing with sin in the church. We celebrate God's salvation, not by continuing in malice and wickedness, but by pursuing sincerity and truth. Living out the cleansing and holiness God has given us. Notice Paul says, be a new unleavened batch as you really are. God has made you holy, so live like it. Back in chapter 1, he said, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and you're called to be his holy people. We do that by being serious about sin in our individual lives and about sin in the life of the church. There have been times in the history of the church when Christians thought it was their job to make the world outside the church live like Christians. But Paul says that's not our job. We cannot hold the world accountable for a way of life it has never signed up to. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, that's a previous letter to this one, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. And Paul doesn't expect them to do that. He's not calling them to retreat into monasteries. But, he says in verse 11, now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but a sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That last quotation is from the Old Testament. It shows God has always had the same concern for the holiness of his people. 
And being willing to do radical discipline has always been a matter of obedience to God. It's not just for super serious churches. It's for every church. And when we read in verse 11 about these sins, it's important that we say again, just to be clear, Paul is talking here about unrepentant sin. Every Christian is going to struggle with these kind of sins. We will be tempted by them, and we might fall into them. But the discipline we're talking about comes when the person claims to be a Christian, but refuses to struggle. When someone is like that, Paul says, don't even eat with them. Why would he say that? Well, in our culture, eating together is a bit of a lost art. Many of us are more likely to eat with the TV than we are with our family. We don't tend to do meals around the table very much. But for most of the world, for most of history, eating together has been a central part of the day. The people you ate with were the people you belonged with. The conversation you shared with those people around the table was precious. And when we realize that, Paul's instruction makes more sense to us. These Christians would regularly share meals in each other's homes. At this stage, the Lord's Supper was shared in that kind of setting. So to be excluded from that table fellowship was a significant thing. It would have hurt. It would have hurt the person who was excluded and the people who excluded him or her. Maybe this would have been the most painful part of the discipline. But it sent the serious signal that we cannot treat you as part of the fellowship anymore. Of course, we'll talk to you. Of course, we will meet with you. There's no indication the person is to be shunned in the sense of ignoring them. But when the church family shares those times of close fellowship around a table, the disciplined person will not be there. And their absence will be painful for everyone. But it will have a purpose. It will be for the sake of the name of Jesus that it not be dishonored. It will be for the sake of the individual being disciplined to bring them to repentance. It will be for the sake of the church itself to protect it from harm. Last week we finished with a statement about what it means to be a servant of God. And finishing with that same statement will help us put this passage in context. The servants of Christ have a fundamental charge laid on them. They have been entrusted with the gospel. And all their service turns on making that gospel known and on encouraging the people of God by word, example, and discipline to live it out. As Christians, we are committed to church discipline because the world needs to see the good news about Jesus makes a difference. It causes unfaithful people to get serious about faithfulness. 
It causes selfish people to get serious about loving others. It causes greedy and bitter people to get serious about sharing and forgiving. It causes liars to get serious about the truth. And so as people who are tempted to all of those sins, we seek the help of God's Holy Spirit to grow in self-discipline. We seek to hold one another accountable. And if in some sad, sad situations that level of gentle discipline is not enough, then with tears we are willing to take the step of radical discipline for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, we know and we confess to you our weakness. You tell us if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we know our weakness but we do not try to excuse our weakness. We hear your call to put aside the deeds of darkness. And so we commit ourselves again to live for you, to pressing on to be conformed to the image of your pure, spotless son, Jesus. We ask you to give us courage to put sin to death in our lives, not once, but every single day until Jesus comes back. As a fellowship of those who profess to love Jesus, will you give us courage to hold one another accountable for our profession? And may none of us here this morning, may none of us in our fellowship ever, ever outlive our love for you. Pour out your mercy and your grace on us. Amen. The Bible tells us the best way to increase our love for holiness and our distaste for sin is to look up to our holy God.